In this interview, I'm joined by Jack Haubner, prize-winning author of the memoirs Zen Confidential, Confessions of a Wayward Monk, and Single White Monk, Tales of Death, Failure, and Bad Sex. In this interview, Jack shares his early spiritual openings, his strict Catholic upbringing, subsequent break from Christianity, and discovery of Buddhism. Jack reveals his complex relationship with his first Zen mentor, describes the development of his personal meditation practice, and recounts his initial meetings with renowned and latterly infamous spiritual teacher Joshu Sasaki Roshi. Jack went on to become the head monk at Sasaki's monastery, a role which he occupied during the widely publicized sexual misconduct allegations made against the aged abbot. Jack reflects on the decades-long open secret of Sasaki's conduct within the Zen community, and discusses the widespread and complex fallout of a charismatic religious leader's fall from grace. So without further ado, Jack Haubner. Jack Haubner, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very pleased to have you here on the podcast to talk about your life in Zen, and also your career as a writer. And very interesting on both counts, I think. But I'd like to start a little earlier than that. You write in Single White Monk, I've been searching for a true story my whole life. Writing and spirituality have always been intimately connected for me. I began writing in earnest my junior year of high school, when I had what some might call a spiritual opening. Though for me, it was more like a taste of unfiltered reality. You've described that opening as uh, something completely shifted. It was like the bottom of my mind dropped out. So I'm curious if we could start in your childhood and your upbringing and uh, education and so on, and perhaps talk a little about this spiritual opening. Yeah. Oh, boy, I forgot that I'd even written that. And as you were reading it back to me, I remembered how carefully <laughs> I had phrased it, because if I actually spoke about the thing itself, it would sound really trite and mundane. Um, but backing up to before that, my, my upbringing, I mean, I was raised at a in Wisconsin, in the Midwest, in America, which um, in a really Catholic conservative family. So my mom was very religious and we went to Latin mass and we had a little bit of homeschooling here and a little bit of um, schooling that was uh, guided by teachers my parents hired there. and lots of, of priests around. And so I was really steeped in a religious environment, but um, th that was kind of the equipment I had to, to funnel these spiritual impulses through. But um, by the time I got to college, I'm skipping over that event you talked about. <laughs> by the time I got to college, it was kind of uh, times up on Catholicism. So, I mean, writing was a way for me to just kind of, free writing was a way to just write and write and write and write and kind of explore ideas and see what was hiding inside there and um, un unpack thoughts and emotions and maybe insights that I had. The writing wasn't any good, but the, but the process was beautiful. Um, you know, and as far as that one moment that I had, I don't know quite how to describe it, except that, um, um, I was driving down the street, uh, the 94 freeway, and I don't remember if I wrote about this in the book, but I was driving down the 94 freeway in, in Wisconsin, and uh, there was an old outdoor um, theater. Uh, and I remember looking at this um, 
theater, there were just these, I, I don't remember if I actually, if, there, if I could see the theater from the freeway, but I remember that moment when I looked at it and just my mind was wiped clean. And then when I sort of came back to myself, I had this um, thought that I've since discovered is, is pretty common with, with um, pretty common thought, especially in philosophy. In fact, a guy named Jim Holt wrote a whole book about it. Um, and a question, it was just a question of all of existence in that moment felt to me like totally um, like a gift. Like this doesn't have to be, there could be nothing at all. There should be nothing at all. This, this doesn't really make any sense. And so to me, it was kind of like all of existence that even if this, even if I'm just in a simulation, like Elon Musk thinks, still the simulation is a miracle. The whole thing, the fact that there is something rather than total nothing is a miracle. And in that moment, I guess I maybe thought about that something, the fact of it or whatever as God and my, guess my journey went from there. How would you describe that in in Zen terms? I don't know if that that's probably not a very good Zen question, but how would you? Of course, at that time, I suppose you didn't have any such reference, or maybe a better way no. of phrasing it would be: what, what did you think at that time? Did you re, did you reference it to God in the in the Catholic or Christian sense, or was yeah, it something else? Question. And how would you describe it in terms of in Zen parlance, if such a thing's possible? You know, it's funny. At the time, now that you mention it, I didn't describe it in any religious terms. That was like the sort of the beginning of the end of my describing things or thinking about things or practicing within the Christian net framework. Um, what I did was I went home and I wrote it down and then that became the beginning of this massive, massive, massive unfinished book. It was called the Book of Questions, I think. And I just started writing down all the questions I had about everything I could think of, moral, philosophical, artistic, personal, you name it. Um, I eventually abandoned, wisely abandoned that work. But that was how I went on to process it. And in terms of thinking about it in Zen terms, I, you know, I, I don't, yeah, I've never quite shoehorned it into, into Zen terms. Some of the experiences that I had on the cushion within the Zen context were, were dissimilar. This this one um, kind of, I, I would never want to shoehorn it into the Zen way of thinking or looking at things because it, it doesn't quite fit for me, I guess. Where doesn't it fit? Okay, let me put it, to, if I was to put it in Zen terms, I think maybe uh, it's a little bit of an opening. I remember a monk telling me once, you know, I was at the monastery and I was like kind of overwhelmed by everything. Uh, and I was meeting the Zen master and doing this koan practice and hearing these terms for the first time, like Kensho and Satori. And I remember a monk telling me like, dude, relax. He's like, everybody has openings. Everybody has openings. I remember thinking, oh, okay, <laughs> I'm everybody. I, I can have openings. And maybe, maybe what I had that day, I think it was a kind of an opening, you know? It was something, it was kind of a, an opening where your thinking mind, your usual framework drops away. Actually, I would probably use Christian terminology for it. It was more like a moment of grace, I think. I, I wasn't practicing, I hadn't quote unquote earned it, but it just appeared like a moment of grace and the bottom of my mind dropped out. And that part, of course, I don't really remember. Um, but afterwards, I remember this, this beautiful flowering of this insight, you know, like, whoa, this is all, this is all extra. This is all God.
you know, because it does because it doesn't the fact that there's anything is proof proof of of the importance of the spiritual path for me. That's how I would put it. Very interesting. In in Zen Confidential, you write about your Catholicism. Uh, for many of us, the religion we were born into is like a birthmark or even a deformity. Yeah. Either we've kept it and learned to live with it, or we bear the scars from its removal. I was lucky enough to graft a new spiritual practice in Zen onto the open wound my lopped off Catholicism left behind before the gaping gash could harden over. Yet I still feel my childhood faith twitching in the emptiness like a phantom limb. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering uh, what precipitated this um, uh, lopping off of your Catholicism? What, what, what led to it? Why, did you, why do you think it happened? And also, I'm curious a bit about, about its impact. I mean, it wasn't only uh, a religious view. It also seemed to be very, very entrenched in almost every aspect of your life and education and mindset. You've written elsewhere also that it uh, affected very deeply your um, sense of the erotic and so on. Uh, yeah. And so, so I'm curious. I mean, that's a lot of questions. But I suppose, first of all, what caused the lopping off? And secondly, uh, maybe this is a, a really big question. Um, what do you think the lasting impacts of that immersion in Catholicism have been? You know, I think that what caused the lopping off, I remember um, reading Nietzsche in college um, on the advantage and disadvantage of history for life, I think was the interpretation that I had, or the um, translation that I had read. Uh, and I was in Rome at the time um, studying there. My college had a campus. And so I was like immersed in the heart of Catholicism. And I had a really good, young, kind of cool theology teacher. And I remember asking him like about the boundaries, just in terms of mortal sins around sexual conduct. Like, okay, the church says it's a mortal sin to uh, commit I don't know, I didn't remember what, what the moral sin is, but you don't do bad sex in Catholicism. So there's, a, there's the sense that you don't have sex till you get married or it's a mortal sin. That's kind of what I was taught. And I was taught in these kind of very clear terms. So I remember asking this priest like, okay, well, what's the, what's the boundary? Can you French kiss? Can you press up against someone? Like there's gotta be a line, what's the line? And he was a smart guy and he was um, a little bit more liberal than some of my other professors. And we talked and his kind of conclusion was, well, uh, I'm not sure what the line is exactly. You know, maybe you have to find the line or maybe the line is here, maybe it's there. So just the fact that this really smart, young, well-respected theology professor was speaking to the gray area that I knew was there already, and reading Nietzsche on top of that, who in this in on advantage and disadvantage of history for life really nailed Christianity to the cross. I mean, in ways that I that that reflected how I was feeling about it, but but articulated it in in it was just a meme that stuck in my head. I think that was the beginning of of the end for me. So it wasn't like I threw away my faith. It was more because I was never that in into Christianity, it was just kind of the tool that I had. And so at that point it was like, yeah, I need, I just outgrew it, you know? I just kind of began to leave it behind. And all those rules and the need for faith and the um, authority figures coming down from Rome, it all just began to feel too heavy and too um, 
too, you know, outdated, too much a part of my past. Hmm. Very interesting. Were, were you raised uh, Christian or Catholic or in anything? Actually, yes. Um, I was raised in a kind of Catholic context myself, except very yeah. different, very different, almost the inverse to yours. <laughs> I grew up on this little Shet uh, Scottish island called Shetland, and there my mother had this uh, idea that um, anybody, you know, they, they have that saying that if you want to be a politician, that should be, uh, that should exclude you immediately from the profession. Anyone right. who wants to be a profession uh, politician shouldn't be one. She thought that about catechism teachers. Anyone who wanted to teach catechism probably shouldn't teach catechism. And so she wouldn't let my brother and I go to catechism. She had this idea of a private faith, uh, not uh, the, the church, the mass, therefore not a place where everyone comes together to sort of celebrate all thinking the same thing or agreeing on the same doctrinal or sharing the same doctrinal views, but actually as a sort of place for quiet contemplation. And there is that strand in Catholicism. And uh, particularly, we didn't have the Latin mass, but I think particularly in the Latin mass, there was that sense that no matter where you were in the world, um, you could go into a mass and it would be, you know, that all Catholics around the world had that in common, something like yeah. this. So um, it was very much more to do with the ritual. And it's a contemplative approach. And I was an altar boy from five or six years old, this very quiet, uh, deep priest who didn't really say much he would instruct just through his body language you know instruct the the uh, choreography of the mass and so on so it was a small place a small uh, situation no doctrine yeah okay okay so do you still practice catholicism are you still like where's where are you at now with with that no i wouldn't say that i practice catholicism now um yeah, so I don't go to the mass or right. uh, do any of, I mean, that's, I think, one of the real keys to practicing Catholicism, isn't it? The the Eucharist, etc., and all that sort of thing. So I don't do that. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. really, um, uh, it's it's a lens, I, uh, it's a lens, it's a, yeah, so doctrinally, I mean, I was never particularly ensconced in it. Right. But I think from a contemplative or mystical point of view, and I only mean that in the sense of direct experience, Mm -hmm. That's trans tradition. So, you know, I'm not not a Catholic, but I don't think I was the kind of Catholic that uh, you, you could really class it as such, you know? Right. You know, I wonder, I, I wonder a little bit if this, this is my sort of my fresh eyes as an American in Europe, but I often wonder if the attitude and the culture around Catholicism isn't totally different here than in America. I mean, it's almost like in America we have, um, you know, you have to pick and you have to choose your identity and your role in society. Nothing is laid out for you. Like in Austria is a Catholic country, so to speak. Right. And I think most of the people, at least around my age and your age, probably have the same approach to Catholicism, maybe that you do. But still, when we go into the grocery store, we say, Gruß Gott, which means good God, which is basically like help, greetings from the perspective of the Catholic faith, you know? And everybody says it and nobody thinks twice about it, you know? There's yeah. a real kind of um, cultural Catholicism where, whereas in America, it was, at least in my family, it was really tied and linked to a certain conservative um, political uh, way of life mindset that I just don't see so much over here. I think I feel like you guys are a little bit more um, I don't know, less 
less political with it and almost even less religious about it. It can just kind of inform your way of life, but not be an, a, an identity you have to adhere to or reject. Well, of course, Catholic as an adjective can mean broad in the sense of you have a Catholic music taste. It can mean you like all different kinds of music. So perhaps it has that sense sometimes. But of course, Austrian Catholicism is very different from Irish Catholicism. Okay. for example uh, let's say that and uh here in the uk where i live you know england and scotland and so on a very interesting history of the political history of catholicism oh, and uh, protestantism going on so there's all that sort of thing going on uh, that's all that sort of thing informs it in america i think as immigrants with the if you want tri the tribal competition between the different religious faiths and the different groups uh, perhaps religion became a much more cohesive and identifying force there for, for those sorts of reasons. But it's certainly be used, been used politically and in, in Europe throughout Europe's history and even recently, very in Ireland, for example, in Northern Ireland, um, yeah. uh, and fascistically, if you want, oppressively. So I don't know if it's more, you know, but anyway, I think Christianity in, in Europe is considerably less of a political power, powerful force. Less, yeah. I think, than it is, at least in places like the UK and probably Austria. I mean, I don't know about Italy right. and Ireland. Well, you know. <laughs> they have a very complicated history because of the terrible abuses that went on there. Right, right. Yeah, you're making a good point. I always, um, uh, I always, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. It's, it's interesting looking at American religiosity through the lens of, of this European continent. It seems like there is so much less versions and strands and permutations of Christianity here than there are in, say, America, where there's, I mean, you, you swing a cat on a street corner and you hit three mega churches with three different affiliations, each with 20,000 person stadiums. And a private jet. And a private jet. Well, you can't, you can't, you know, fly to meet your parishioners without one. The Lord provides. <laughs> he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. I'm curious then, you write in Zen Confidential a bit about some of your other, uh, you know, explorations in Buddhism in particular, before you became very interested in Zen. I'm wondering, can you take us from, you know, you're in Rome there, you're a semester abroad. Uh, what happens next in terms of your exploration? You started to uh, outgrow, as you put it, Catholicism. You're looking now beyond. What, what happens now? I got a degree in philosophy. I was at the University of Dallas, which had a really good, great books program, um, but they were really concentrated on like the Plato, Aristotle, the pre-Socratics, a little bit of the European Enlightenment, and a lot of Thomas Aquinas and, the cat, and Augustine and the cat. They were really centered at that time on Thomas Aquinas. It was a Thomistic school, their philosophy school. So I studied that, but my senior year, I decided to get away from that entirely and just study the postmodernists for my thesis. So I did my thesis on the postmodernists. Um, and that kind of exhausted me on philosophy. I was done. So I went to Hollywood because I wanted to write. And Pulp Fiction had come out. And I thought, well, I think I'll write screenplays. That was a pretty cool movie. So I had no idea how to tell a story. So I started reading Joseph Campbell, which everybody does in Hollywood. They read The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, you know, and, and, and at the time I was also having a lot of nights where I was driving around late Los Angeles by myself, thinking about life and, and, and women. <laughs> and um, 
I remember listening to, I think it was KCRW or one of the kind of the good, a 90.7, I think, and they would play Alan Watts. You know, Alan Watts is like the gateway drug for 90% of people who discover Zen. He's so eloquent. He is just, he's magical. He is gifted, his oratory skills. So I was listening to him and I was reading Joseph Campbell. And through that, I suddenly realized, I, I think this Buddhism stuff is interesting. So I think I went to, I Googled, this is like right when Google started and I Googled Buddhism LA and this group popped up in the first group, I went to their meeting. It's ironic because right down the street from me now here in Vienna, there's a, a, a branch of this group. I think it was the Lama Yeshe, um, not Lama Yeshe, Oli Nidal, that's who it was. Um, you know, and they did some stuff where they would chant the mantras and um, it was a little bit, uh, I mean, it wasn't quite my bag, so I did them for a while and they really, I had some great experiences with like just going to people's houses and talking to them about Buddhism. Like when you first get a taste being a, you know, a sheltered Catholic boy who was used to Thomist philosophy and Platonism, my God, like four years of that in college. And then you just get a taste for like genuine um, Buddhist wisdom. It blew my mind. The idea of no self, the idea of codependent origination the idea of a spirituality that doesn't include a creator God and, and those kinds of rules and philosophies. It, was, it blew up, so I was hooked. So then I went to a Shambhala class in Los Angeles and I did that for maybe like two or three years. And that was also really amazing. I mean, they were really good at, it was just two guys. One of them was, I think a musician for movies and the other one, and they were like this, this, this Abbott and Costello type type duo up there and they were kind of laid back and funny and they presented Buddhist teachings the way the Shambhala tradition did and maybe still does Buddhist teachings that make sense in your everyday normal human life that was really um helpful and then one day I did actually a retreat with them and it was torture it was all sitting and I hated it and at one point I looked up and I saw the the the, the altar and it had all these Tibetan things on it like these prayer flags. And I remember thinking, this is just too busy. It's too busy. That was it. Then I was done. And then I saw a postcard for my mentor's um, sitting group um, for Zen. And that's how I finally found Zen. And then that really stuck. Like he, I mean, I wrote about this in the book. Um, you know, the first time I saw him, he was like wearing his full robes and sitting in this little room. He had like a community room in a parking garage, um, in a, like a mini mall, you know? It was a very humble surroundings, but and it was just like a few cushions lined up in the concrete. But his presence and the presence of those robes, I mean, something about that really, really caught. And that's how I found Zen and eventually the monastery. That's very interesting. Of course, Zen, and Tibetan Buddhism, like in the Shambhala or the Diamond Way, uh, Lama Erlen Nadal's approach, uh, of course, they're both Buddhism, but rather different in, in, in some ways. I'm wondering, uh, do you think it was the potent presence of the man you call in the book your mentor uh, that that was what led you in that direction? Or was there something about Zen itself or, or, or some other wider aesthetic that drew you in? Uh, do you think if you'd met a potent person of a similar type, or if your mentor, for instance, had come in wearing Tibetan robes, for example, um, 
you would have been drawn in that direction? You know, I remember um, Leonard Cohen talking about how, you know, I studied with the man and he could have been a great physicist or a great teacher in the Tibetan tradition or something. Uh, he had words to that effect. I feel sort of the opposite. I felt, I, first of all, I think there was something about the stark simplicity of the setting, the black robes, the black cushions, the um, that room down there in the uh, um, uh, parking garage that where homeless people, uh, you know, junkies shot up, shot shot up. You know, it was a very. I mean, it's this combination of factors, but the simplicity, the simplicity of Zen practice, and kind of the the teachings that my Zen masters, Joshu Sasaki Roshi had, trying to strip things down to their clearest, simplest, least uh, religious, um, deepest elements. I think there, I don't know that I could have found that in like um, many aspects of the Tibetan tradition. And I'm just thinking right now of a friend I have who's actually right now at a retreat in Germany and she studied in Tibet with a bunch of lamas and they have many, many different practices that involve visualization, um, you know, fire practices, puja practices, bikinis and a lot of stuff going on. I think I was looking for, you know, my teacher said Zen is, um, has few moving parts. I think I was looking for something with few moving parts. It turns out Zen has more moving parts than I had thought. There's a lot of ritual. There's a lot of tradition. There's a lot of even baggage, I would say. Uh, much of it coming from the fact that it, it arises out of a specific culture in Japan that, that can be very um, chauvinistic and, and uh, patriarchal. But all that being said, um, there was something about the simplicity of the Zen practice itself. And then the way I saw my mentor manifesting it that really, really captivated me, spoke to me and, and drew me in. Could you say a little bit more about uh, your mentor? You write in the book about in Zen Confidential about um, a conflict between Friday night spirituality and Sunday morning spirituality and how your relationship with your mentor resolved that to some degree. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I had a pretty clear binary between good behavior and bad behavior. And he kind of helped me realize that behavior is behavior. <laughs> um, and... And as long, this is kind of tricky. I've been thinking about this lately and I actually just shot a video about this. Um, at that time I was, I was, you know, tortured a little bit between the side of me that wanted to test the bounds of reality as William Blake put it, or was it Jim Morrison? I can't remember. And explore boundaries and then stay behind clear boundaries, you know? Um, and he helped me relax around that. We could go out, we could get drunk um, and, and feel love and openness and a sense of possibility. And it didn't have to lead to some of the um, bad situations that those kinds of nights would lead to if I was out with my friends in Hollywood, you know? Um, it, it wasn't a nihilistic or a self-destructive aspect. There was a celebratory aspect. Um, he practiced really, really seriously. Like, 
And I could see that. I could see the teachings of no self manifested. And I could see him manifesting those teachings to his degree and, and his level of understanding and insight in the bar as well as in the zendo. Different ways, um, but I could see that happening in a way that I hadn't seen before in any of the priests or the philosophers that I had, I had, I had seen and, and, and worked with and studied with, that sort of thing. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, certainly. What was your practice like at that time? What, what, were your, what was the beginnings of your learning about Zen and beginning to practice? What was the experience of that? I suppose meditation and so on. Yeah, well, see, it's funny. I mean, at that, so, so I kind of just would go to the Zendo. So he had a little sitting group and I would go to this little sitting group um, and I would hang out with him. So I did the sitting kind of because I just wanted to hang out with this guy and ask him a bunch of annoying questions. But to get to that, I would have to do the hour and a half of sitting. And my pr sitting practice was pretty bad. Um, you know, I was, I was doing a version of, of mindfulness that I had learned at Shambhala. So the, and it was actually really helpful. So the thoughts arise and you don't, you, you, the practice is to notice them. Okay, I'm thinking, you know, you note it and then you bring your attention back to the breath. Note, bring back to the breath. But usually what I was doing more was kind of spacing out a little bit and waiting for the sitting to end so that I could um, talk to my mentor. So it was a, I was still, you know, this is back several, I was still a recovering philosopher. I was still really stuck in my head. I still took the thinking mind totally for granted as the default, right? So eventually my mentor, was working on this big quantum physics meets Zen project. And it was really um, interesting to me. And, and so we were, were talking about it a lot together and I started reading all this quantum physics stuff, which of course blew my mind that I couldn't understand. Um, I remember being in the LA library and reading all this stuff to try and help him on this project. And suddenly something clicked. And I was like, it's not that you don't understand the quantum physics. It's that you don't have a wide enough heart or mind to receive the, um, uh, how can I put it? You, like my being wasn't equipped to handle the, the task. And actually that was a practice problem. It had nothing to do with the science, you know? It was a, I, I, I just wasn't going to understand what my mentor was talking about intellectually. And then I realized you do need to practice. You do need this. It's different than thinking. It's different than trying to understand things intellectually. You have to practice. You have to, you have to practice. Yeah. And that was the beginning of it. So, I, but I didn't really learn to sit until, you know, a, a long time of sitting at the monastery. I was just committed to it. Um, I was committed to the practice. I did my first retreat out of nowhere, you know, and it, and it was basically just torture getting through it, I think. I don't remember having any, <clears throat> any real insights or, or, or openings on the cushion. I don't remember really sitting. It was just sit after sit after sit for training season after training season. You gradually exhaust all uh, other options until you have to finally practice and sit. And, and then that, that was when I started to learn. What does it mean to finally learn to sit? I mean, for me, and I still have to do it, it's like my mind really wants to 
produce some kind of finality, a, a perfect insight that's like a tit that it can keep sucking on whenever it's hungry, you know? And that's like a, that's like a default mechanism for, for my, my mind. But the practice is, and it's so hard to do because it's like, it's counterintuitive. It's like, you know, it's like that Zen koan when you come to the end of the, um, I don't know, it's a ladder or a flagpole or something, what do you do? You know, what do you do when you, when you come to the end of it? Somehow you have to fly. <laughs> you have to do the opposite of what you, you have to fall. You have to do the opposite of what you think you have to do. You have to stop, stop thinking. You can't think more. You have to stop thinking. But of course you can't stop thinking because, because you can't stop thinking. It's an organ in some, between your ears that produces thoughts. So the practices, my practice, the practice that I was taught was very clear on this. Yeah, you have a bunch of thoughts. You have a bunch of mental energy. You have a self. Give it away. All that energy that was going into trying to make some kind of mental um, framework in my head, like I said, that tit that I wanted to suck on whenever I was hungry for knowledge and wisdom and for certainty, take all that energy and you give it to the an activity. And that was really key for me. That was really, really key. Mentation is a loop and it takes place up here and it's just you. But an activity is you include the world. So you, you exhale completely in that activity and the world, your surroundings graciously receive your breath. If it didn't receive it, it would be a hand over your mouth and you would suffocate to death, right? And you exhale completely. And then your mind starts thinking and then you, and then you, the practice is give yourself again, dissolve that thinking mind into the activity. And when the exhale is complete, now you inhale and the, the, your body graciously receives the inhale and makes your surroundings part of your inner world. You know, you have oxygen for your blood cells. You can keep living. So there's this connection happening. And, and along with that, there's a relationship that you're making with your surroundings. Your surroundings are coming into you and they're um, coming to life inside of you. And, and from that life, a self arises and the thoughts arise. So now you start to realize, oh, it's this self and this thinking mind that I've been taking for granted and, and trying to grab onto. It's actually a byproduct of a relationship between my inside and my outside. Um, and doing that, doing that practice of making relationship with your surroundings, inside and outside coming together, that's the practice. And it sounds kind of complex, but really it's just giving yourself to the exhale when the thinking mind arises, giving your, and then receiving the outer world completely when the exhale is complete and breathing, that's it. And then what I found was, when I could do that, there was a kind of, um, uh, you could call it everything from a resurrection to a freshness in perspective. And whatever problem was really bothering me that I was working over in my mind, working to death in my mind, I had an insight into it that came naturally, just spontaneously popped up. So when my mind, you know, somebody said once um, that, 
they're meditative tools. They're like the their meditation is like a tool to kind of release the the grip of the mind that it has, release this clutching, grasping mind, so that yeah, so that deeper insights and wisdom can arise naturally. It's fascinating, and I think what you're saying there speaks to perhaps. I wonder if you think this is the case. In particular, that Rinzai flavor of training, so embodied. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I have a friend, um, uh, he's got a great, uh, I think he's got a podcast, and I know he's got an Instagram page called Humans Are, Humans Are Divine, and he lives in Los Angeles, and we talk a little bit back and forth about, he's, I, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting exactly the tradition that he's in, but it's Tibetan, and it's the closest tradition to Zen in Tibetan. Um, and, you know, it's a different approach that he takes. There's more emphasis on awareness and uh, certain mind states and, and um, teachings, whereas Zen really is em embodied. It, you really are doing a, a an activity. You're doing a practice. You're embodying, you know, there's a whole Zen, um, all, a whole tradition of koan practice where someone comes to a Zen master with a really intellectual question and he bops him over the head to get him out of his head or they hear a stone hitting bamboo and there's an enlightenment experience. It's very embodied. It's not a practice that, that emphasizes or even necessarily values philosophy or, um, uh, complicated intellectual ways of looking at things, especially Rinzai, which is very direct. You mentioned before you, you're witnessing your mentor expressing the idea of no self, the teaching of no self, or the uh, realization of no self, as, uh, such as he had in the bar. H how does one express no self in in a bar? I think for me, it was it was. Um, it was a wow, how do you pronounce that French phrase, wow de vivre, like wow de vivre, like a joy of life, a, a, and a pre, like being in those surroundings and not being caught up in, the, in what one is usually caught up in at a Los Angeles bar, how you look, how people are approaching you, what the scene is, you know. I mean, the LA bars are kind of a meat market, and um, it's really a, it's a really a, it's a, it's a sexual survival of the fittest, you know. But he could be in there and appreciate a beautiful person, but it wasn't lusty, um, and it, and it, and it wasn't um, appetitive. It was just, it was just the way he would appreciate a, a beautiful arrangement of flowers. Um, he was funny and spontaneous, and I remember appreciating how he ate food. It was very, um, uh, um, I don't know. It was, he, he, he had a way of connecting with, with simple, simple activities. So I would get into my food. I would eat it. It wasn't just in front of me to stuff, you know, to stuff my face while I was talking. It was, he really, he really, you know, he did hundreds and hundreds of Zen meals where you, where you have to do meal practice. You have to pay attention to how you're eating and not to the taste of the food, but to the activity of, of meal practice, you know? So we'd be sitting around eating chips or something and he would really be, really be paying attention to the food, you know? So is it just a different way of being in really, mundane circumstances where I hadn't seen that way of being before.
Very interesting indeed. And you write in the book about uh, a couple of occasions where he made sexual advances on you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. compared you also to a, um, a porn star who looked like yours, right? Gary, Gary something. I forget the name of the guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let me hit the, let me hit the passes thing first. Right. So we were really, really close and I was watching him like a hawk because I'm not, um, yeah, I was looking for the, the kink or the, you know, in the, in the armor, <laughs> kink, so to speak. Um, okay, was, was this guy a phony? Like, was there a point when all of this talk of no self was gonna shift into don't have any boundaries, just let's go to bed. You know, I was really paying attention like a hawk. And we were very close and there was a lot of love there. And, a couple times he put out the feelers. I don't remember how I put it in the book. Apparently I said he made a pass, but he put out the feelers. And when I made my boundaries clear, nothing changed. At one point he said, you know what? I have feelings for you and I can't do the friendship thing. And so he backed off, but eventually he said, you know what? You're a good friend. And he came back and, and, and we've been, been friends ever since. So, that was kind of a key moment for me. If he had pushed the sexual angle or I had seen how he was using te Buddhist teachings to somehow try and get in my pants, like it seems a lot of teachers have done in, in, in Dharma traditions, I would have, I would have been out of there. So that's speaking to that, that point. Then the second one was the porn star. That was a bizarre situation where he, it, this is a great story, and I wrote about it in the book. Um, suffice it to say, he had um, a, a seen a movie with, with a porn star that he claimed was me. And, and he, he absolutely insisted that it was me. And this was a key moment in our relationship. Like, this was around the time when he said, I have feelings for you, and I said, I don't, I'm not attracted to men sexually. I'm just not. I mean, I could go there maybe, but it would be like eating sushi. I'm not really drawn to it. I have to kind of force myself. Um, and he said, okay, fine. Meanwhile, he goes out and he, and he sees this movie with a guy that he claims is identical to me. So he approaches me with this and I'm like, what is going on here? And he's telling me this. He's like, dude, it's you. It is you. And I'm like, I, I trust this guy. I know he's not messing with me. We're sitting in the park in West Hollywood. And he's telling me it's you. And he's really firm. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. But if I was in a, in a gay porn, I would probably know. <laughs> so he's like, all right, let's go rent it. Oh, it was Glory Holes of Chicago. And the porn actor's name was Daniel Reed. So we go and rent the video from a circus of books in West Hollywood. And I'm like, at this time, I'm like really into these Zen teachings and I totally trust this guy. So I'm like, let's see where this goes. So we go to my house, we put in the movie and he fast forwards to, the, to, to Daniel Reed's scene where he's, you know, 
he's involved in sexual activity with five or six men. <laughs> um, and I look at this guy and my jaw drops because he looks just like me. I mean, he's like a dead ringer. And it's, I'm, I'm, I'm being a little bit, I mean, he was the hot version of me. And I'm like, first of all, Keegan, those aren't my pecs. And those aren't my thighs. I have bird legs. This guy has, has quads, you know? He's like, dude, after five months of working out, you could have had a body like this. Before I met you, this could have been you. So I'm looking at it and I'm like, I can't argue with him. I mean, the, he really, the guy was, it was bizarre. The guy was like a dead ringer for me. So I'm sitting there, I'm like, I didn't, you know, it, I, I don't quite know how to describe the climate of the room at that time. I really trusted him. I had, uh, I was in a stage in my life when a lot of things were up in the air. I was questioning a lot of things. I was questioning my version of reality. I, I had had some experiences at this point on the cushion where that sense of self dissolved. I was thinking about throwing everything away that I hadn't going to the monastery. So I was really open at the time. So I was, it sounds strange, but I was watching this video thinking, was this me? Did it, was I in this video, you know? Um, eventually my mentor says, it can't be you. I'm, I'm like, you're right, but why? And he's like, look at his second toe. <laughs> My mentor likes feet. And I look at his second, I'm like, I don't get it, what? He's like, those aren't your feet. He's like, those aren't your feet. I'm like, yeah, you're right. The second toe was longer than the big toe. He's like, those aren't your feet. I was like, I guess I could have been wearing prosthetic toes, but that's a bit of a stretch. So, so that was how we both came to the conclusion that I had not been in this porno pornographic film. Yeah, but it was a very interesting, it was a very interesting experience. Yeah, that's that story. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. So how did you meet Sasaki Roshi, Joshi Sasaki Roshi? Just through my mentor. So eventually I, um, I went to the monastery. I kind of decided um, spontaneously that I was going to leave my apartment in West Hollywood. My, my mentor was going to take, care, take over the apartment because he was kind of looking to move out of the Zen temple. So he moved into my apartment. I moved to the monastery. I actually... Um, met Sasaki Roshi through a, a, a ceremony that the head monk does with new students and the teacher. Um, I forget what the name of that ceremony is, but you bring incense and like, or you bring a donation for incense and you go into the room and you have tea with him. And then the head monk reads a statement about how difficult Zen is and try your hardest. And that's how you meet the teacher. And then four times a day during the retreat that followed, I would meet with him privately and do koan practice. What was your initial impression of him? And in that first retreat also meeting him each day in Sanzen? It's such a strange experience doing a retreat. I mean, you get, you get up at three in the morning, you throw on your robes, you enter the meditation hall, and there's all this form you have to remember. So the practice is taking you out of your head and out of your ego and out of your, your habitual way of doing things. And they're giving you a form to funnel your energy into. So you have to bow when you enter the Zendo, you have to sit a certain way. There are officers, monks in the meditation hall that are gonna make sure you're doing it a certain way. The schedule is really regimented. It's really strict. Your body is in pain. Your mind is screaming. You don't know what's going on. That suddenly then you're sitting in a room with this hundred year old Zen master 
who really knows how to do this koan practice. Um, so I projected a lot of things onto him. Um, I thought he was a gnomic and um, kind of a Yoda-like figure. I didn't know what to necessarily make of him. I, I knew that he was kind of just letting me spin my wheels a little bit. Uh, and, and I didn't really um, know what to do or how to think about him. Like I said, he was very, very old at that time. And he was, a, you know, he spoke only a little bit of English. Um, so you're kind of grunting at him and he's kind of grunting back at you. And my overall impression of him was that he was really, he was really warm and a little bit dangerous, maybe more than a little bit. Um, and so I needed to bring kind of my most sincere self or no self to, to that Sansan room every time. And if I did that, 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 um, that then I could do koan practice with him. Of course, Hisaki Roshi is a man that you grew to know very well indeed, as you, to, to move forward a little, uh, became a monk there, uh, became eventually the head monk there, and uh, indeed became one of his very close carers towards the end of his life. Many people, of course, will know Joshu Sasaki Roshi uh, by his reputation, but perhaps for those that don't, could you say who was he? Who was uh, Joshu Sasaki Roshi? Why, why was he so revered at that time? Well, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he came uh, to the States, I think it was the 50s, there was an influx of teachers from, from Asia around that time. There was a dentist, I think, in, um, I don't remember where it was, maybe the Valley, who wrote to Japan, to Kyoto, to Myoshinji, which was the Rinzai Zen headquarters and said, hey, we'd like a teacher. Um, they sent Joshu Suzaki Roshi. And he started a little sitting group out um, uh, not Pasadena, I forget. I haven't been to LA for a while, so I'm losing my uh, memory of the place. But he started a little sitting group with a bunch of hippies. And then that gradually grew. They found the Mount Bali Zen Center, um, which is about an hour outside of Los Angeles. At the time, it was just an abandoned Boy Scout uh, camp. And they kind of turned it into a monastic style training center. So um, he was at the at the kind of the heart of that hippie, beatnik, um, American Buddhist revolution back in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, Alan Watts was on the board of directors at his temple for a while. And, um, you know, Allen Ginsberg and John Cage were in the literary journal that, that, that Roshi's students edited. And, you know, Ram Dass did a retreat and, you know, he was kind of known at the time as the teacher of, of teachers. Um, so, but, but always, um, not, we never had that many students. I mean, it was a rough practice and Roshi was an idiosyncratic and oftentimes difficult teacher. So, you know, he had a reputation as being very difficult and, but a, but a very great teacher, I think. Um, a rep reputation which got complicated in later years when the whole sex scandal erupted around him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, that's essentially who he was. He taught, um, I mean, he taught for like 50 years. He, he taught till the end. I mean, you said I knew him very well. I, 
I spent a lot of time with him. I was on his deathbed. I was there when he, the moment he died. Um, I was there when he got really sick and almost died. And I watched him kind of practice through his death. But I wouldn't say I never, I ever like, you know, knew the guy. I, I, he was always a bit of a mystery to me. Um, not a mystery, but we were never like buddies, you know, a few times I saw like the man, but mostly I, I kind of, um, I, I mostly just experienced him as the Roshi, which means like old teacher or old wise guy. <laughs> Who do you think knew him best? Oh God. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how much, uh, I don't know how to put this, but I, I wonder how, I wonder how much, I don't know. This is a, this is a deep question because how much of these um, people that we sometimes label with the moniker enlightened, you know, which is a tr problematic term, but how much of a person is in there? I mean, how, 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 you know, how can I put it? Um, I mean, you know, he was a different person. He wasn't like anybody I had ever met. Uh, I know he, he had likes. I mean, he liked, you know, a good glass of cognac. He liked conversation. Um, he liked people. He, he had very, very human qualities and he was very warm, but like you couldn't pin him down. So I don't know if anybody knew him best, you know? He was never a guy where I found myself saying, yeah, I, I kind of get the hang of him. Where, I, where that usually happens with most people. He was always surprising me, he was always fresh. In what way was he fresh? Every day we did the same things over and over. We'd, we'd get him out of bed, like in his later years when he was in his mid hundreds and he was still doing full retreats with us, you know, getting up at four in the morning. We'd get him out of the same exact routine every morning, but he would always seem to me, he always did it um, with total commitment and humor. And you did, weren't quite sure um, what he was gonna say or, but, but there was always this energy I felt that, that came off of him, which was, um, here we go, it's a new day. Anything can happen. Like he kind of glowed with possibility, even though he was dying. He was making practice, dying a practice, it felt like to me, like he was fully inhabiting that role. He would complain all the time about being tired and whatnot, but it was almost like from a perspective of, look at this, you know, this thing, this old body is wearing out. How interesting is that to watch it go? How interesting is that to watch my, my mind begin to lose its, um, its power to understand what you're talking about when you're giving me the monastic financial picture, you know, or to remember all the names of all my hundreds of different students and monks. How interesting is that? And as he felt that way, I could look at it. Oh yeah, it's a guy dying. It's a guy contracting. It's a guy doing the death activity. That's, that was interesting to me to watch that. You don't get to see that often. Usually when people are old and in their final years, they're kind of just dying. But it seemed to me that he, that because he was a Zen master and had done, I mean, he started practicing when he was 14 years old because he had committed himself to that way of life. He wasn't attached to his body or his mind and had 
and, and was able to transmit a kind of, of wisdom about the dying process as a result. So in that sense, it was always fresh to me, even though we were doing the same things, the same tea every morning, the same pickled plums every morning, He'd put on the same robes every morning and we'd do the same practice every morning. It was always fresh, a fresh spring <laughs> bubbling up. Does your time with him still impact you today? Do you still refer to him in, in, in your mind or in your practice in some way, even though he's been gone now for some years? I feel like he kind of dissolved into my system. You know, I don't have dreams about him. I don't think about him that much. I don't have pictures of him in my apartment or um, on my, uh, my boots it on or anything, my altar. Um, but he's there and he bubbles up. He's there. I feel, like he, I feel like he's in my system. You know, I had to make a break with my community a little bit I, and in many ways because I think they were like an alumni association. <laughs> Um, or the Suzaki fan club um, and consciously um, breaking myself from that mindset. Um, I, I, I maybe have gotten in the habit of not thinking about him, but I know he's in there. I know he's in my system. He's in my practice. And if I have a moment of patience or a moment of perspective in my personal life, whereas in the past I would have gotten caught up in a caught up in the drama, I can feel his presence. You mentioned the uh, sexual scandals of Joshu Sasaki Rojini's later life. And uh, you write, and I believe you're, you're writing about, particularly at the end of his life in detail, the, the caring as you've, you've given us a glimpse of that, actually in, the, in um, Single White Monk in particular, you write in a great deal of detail about what you call the four deaths of Sasaki Roshi. Um, right. That's how you decide to present it. Very interesting way of doing it. You, one of the things you write here, for years I'd heard rumors about Roshi's sexual behavior during Sanzen, but it wasn't until Lizzie sat me down that night and explained it in detail that I finally understood. Men are visual, technical creatures, and we can be deeply stupid when we feel that it's in our best interests. We need to see Roshi's hands slipping into the ventilation slit sewn into the armpit of your robes. We need to hear him say, manifest true love as he pulls you into his lap. I'd like to ask you about that time. Actually, you were head monk at that time and uh, very a close attendant of Sasaki Roshi, as you write about in Single White Monk. And you write actually uh, very uh, honestly about the effect of that, the complicated cascade of effects that time had for you which I think is an interesting perspective, actually, and I'd like to ask you about that. But first of all, perhaps we could set the scene. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the four deaths of Sasaki Roshi and contextualize, uh, in particular, uh, the second death, the scandal. Mm. Yeah, as I recall, it's been a while since I wrote that. Um, so first of all, as I recall, um, he died as our teacher. So that was when he got aspiration pneumonia. And up to that point, I think it was, he was 103 or 104. Up to that point, he was leading a full schedule. He was um, in charge of our uh, monastic organization, the different temples. Um, he, he was still teaching his priests and trying to impart some kind of a, a, a vision for the future when he was gone. 
Once he got sick, that was done. I don't think he ever led another retreat again or ever really gave koan practice again. So the role of the teacher of the Roshi died. And a lot of people still um, had the luxury to consider him as the teacher, but I was behind the scenes and I saw that he was now, he was like a, the wise old man who had taken off his robes and he wasn't in that role anymore. So the teacher was dead. Um, the second death that I you referred to was, I guess, the death of his reputation. Um, the sex scandal broke in the final years of his life, but the behavior that led to it had been ongoing. Um, uh, and it finally broke, you know, there were a bunch of articles that were coming out online at the time where one by one, a lot of these teachers who had these reputations that nobody really talked about, finally these things were coming to light. And it happened with Sasaki Roshi. Yeah, this guy is engaged in sexual behavior. Here are some women that are saying it was misconduct. Um, and that story spread like wildfire. I mean, with, within a short period of time, it was in the LA Times, it was in the New York Times, it was in the Atlantic, it was in the Daily Beast, it was in newspapers in Japan, it was in local newspapers, it was in every city just about where we had a center. There was a, the newspapers there wrote about it. I mean, it was big news, you know? Um, that was the death of his reputation base. I mean, to some extent, his public reputation, you know, as you said earlier, this revered teacher, well, now it's revered with an asterisk. I mean, literally in his uh, Wikipedia page, that was the death of his reputation. Um, the third death, I don't remember what that was. The fourth death was his, was his physical death. I think that was his fourth death. He died physically, you know. And the third death, I don't remember what that was, but yeah, I tried to speak to this, these, the different, the different, <laughs> the map. I tried to break up the great death that was going on at that time into into four compartments just to kind of um, uh, make it easy to handle because it was a lot to write about, a lot to think about, and a lot to process. The basics of the sexual activity that was considered to be scandalous seemed to center around activity in the Sanzen or the private koan interview that students were engaging in. Um, and uh, you write in the, in the uh, book about a sort of striation of responses uh, among the many women, it seems, that he initiated sexual contact with from uh, some of them finding it to be a very healing a valuable part of uh, their practice and others uh, uh, saying thanks but no thanks and others feeling taken advantage of yeah uh, and it was an open secret in the community that this was going on so i'm curious what the community narrative was of course open secrets are, are rarely discussed in great depth but um, um what was it a sort of crazy wisdom narrative this is just one of his methods, you know, he's, uh, as you said, difficult teacher, the practice is not for everybody, and this sort of thing. What was the narrative at the time? Because I think part, I mean, part, of, the, part of the grenade of the whole thing, as you write in the book, is not only 
the death of his reputation, but also the implication of everyone around him in in yeah. that in that activity by association. Uh, and you 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 write about that actually very very complex situation. So yes, perhaps we could talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, like he had start. This is yeah, it's a really complex question, to which I don't have any answers. It's still an open question for me. Um, so there were different, you, you said, what was the narrative in the community? So first of all, there were many narratives. Um, there were many responses, like you said, the stride striation of responses. Um, yeah. So in the, you know, in the early days, um, it was a different time and the response was probably different. I wasn't around in the 60s or 70s, but it, it seemed like it was pretty wild back then. I mean, people would come to Sanzen on acid. Somebody tried to kill Roshi and Sanzen once. Um, a bunch, you know, it was very crazy. Uh, there was a lot of sleeping around, a lot of, of, of this idea that open sexuality was, was, was hand in hand with the spiritual path. I think there was a lot of that. The practice was always very strict and very severe, but, but the attitude among the practitioners, I think, was more, um, was, was different, at least than it is now. You know, I think that, that the, as society began to change and evolve in the 80s and 90s, the, the attitude or the, the vibe, the, the geist in the community began to change. I think in the 90s, there were more complaints that began to arise. These situations are so complex. And I, I don't mean in any way by saying that to diminish any experience any man, woman or man had in the community that was negative around this behavior at any time. But in the 90s, it seemed that it became more of a within the community, a public problem. And I know at one point, the monks wrote a letter to Roshi saying, look, we don't understand exactly what's happening with this behavior, but, but it seems to be causing suffering in certain instances, in certain cases. Uh, we're bringing this to your attention. Um, so, and to the best of my knowledge, that was maybe one of the first times this had happened. Uh, and then there were, um, dramas or conflicts within the community around that. You know, the practice was always upsetting the apple cart. There were a lot of, of, of problems and, and intense situations, not just around, um, this sexual issue. I mean, you know, someone would go completely mentally, uh, they would have a breakdown at it. Sometimes people had uh, psychotic episodes that were extremely dangerous. And we would all ask, or they would all ask themselves, and I did when I was at the monster, are we pushing too hard? Is Roshi pushing us too hard? It wasn't just the sexual stuff. It was like, this monk needed care in a psychiatric facility, Zen, pushed him to the brink. What are we doing? You know, there was a lot going on. You know, we would ask ourselves more mundane questions, like all these ceremonies that we're doing, is this really right for the Zen, the American context, or is this just stuff we've imported and don't know what to do with from Japan? There were a lot of things going on, a lot of 
conflicts amongst the monks. I mean, you were really pushed to the absolute limits, at least I found, to, you really had to dig deep. And the monastic setting, you know, we said that it was like rocks, sharp rocks in a bag. And the practice was like you were shaking the bag and people were knocking off each other's sharp edges. So the sexual misconduct or behavior took place within this context and it was part of it. But I remember a female student that I was close to saying to me at one point when I was at the monastery and we were talking about this, she said, yeah, the, the sexual behavior takes place within this really um, pedal to the metal, um, difficult Zen practice. She said, but it's the one area where I don't feel I can talk about it openly and we don't really talk about it openly. So all of that said, that I just said, it seems to me, and it seemed to her that there was a quality to this, the sexual aspect of everything that was different, you know? And it, it, the problem rose to the surface at various points and you would get men and women who would, who would be very much um, charged up with the notion of, of making this behavior end. And the, and the monks and nuns did a lot of things to make that happen. Like there was an era where the monks took every woman aside who was a new practitioner and said, look, this might happen. You, Roshi might make these moves. Say no if you don't wanna do it. You may have to manifest no fully, okay? Um, so there, were, there was that wing or element. There were other people who's, who said, men and women, um, you know, like it, Sanzen's not a safe place. And Roshi uses many methods and pushes many buttons to, to, to teach people. So we don't believe we should interfere at all. Sanzen is private. People should go in there. It's their own responsibility and their own business. You know, I mean, it's very complex. I remember, you know, not to go into detail, but I mean, by the time I was the head monk, Roshi was in his hundreds and he could barely move. But I remember uh, talking to a student and trying to present to her. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't know what was going on, but I felt a responsibility to tell her that um, she could, if anything was happening in Sanzen, she could obviously indefinitely and most assuredly should if she wanted to say no. Um, and I remember her telling me, back off, it's none of your business. Um, and then there were other women who later on came to me and said, you know, I couldn't say anything at the time. I didn't feel comfortable. Everybody was so enamored of Roshi, this great old Zen master. I, I didn't feel it was a comfortable climate to bring the problem up. So it was, it was, Ultimately, then all this energy behind this issue, 50 years worth of energy behind this issue came out once the sex scandal broke. And I remembered the third death of our teacher. It was the death of our, our community. And when the scandal broke and, and different factions developed, um, it really put a knife in the heart of our Sangha. And I don't think our Sangha ever really recovered. In single white monk, you write, as one of his two primary caretakers and the head monk at his main monastery, I was at the heart of this darkness, and the darkness became mine. This is when I began to lose sleep. Uh, this is around the time of um, 
drafting an apology letter and there's going to be a big meeting of of your uh, senior personnel in advance of the of the articles coming out in the press so this is around this time when i started smoking heavily when i caught myself in self-conversation in front of other people i stopped bathing my sex drive went cold though i didn't stop masturbating which is a creepy pleasureless feeling i lost weight i lost my temper I began to forget things, my internet passwords, how to tie my Osho belt, why I walked into a room. I was haunted by the faceless, hysterical voices of the internet, by the hate emails piling up in the office inbox, each of which I tried to respond to, which only made the haters angrier. You also write elsewhere about also the mix of emotions uh, uh, at what you were witnessing within the community. We've talked about the different responses. Um, people making excuses, uh, people um, going on the warpath, um, and all this sort of, you know, intersecting with you. You, you also write, actually, that um, you grew to hate men in particular mm -hmm. in, in, this, in this period. So I'm curious about that. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be in the center of that storm for you personally, um, what your responsibilities were there, and also uh, what it was like personally, uh, what, what, what sort of uh, forces were at work on you, both inside and out. Yeah, I have some perspective now um, on that time. It's funny when you just read that. It's actually pretty accurate to what was going on at that time in me. Um, so first of all, I think, um, with all due respect to my former self, <laughs> I think I was attached to my teacher. I was attached to my notions of good and bad. And those two things conflicted with each other. Um, I was very innocent when you, I remember my mentor telling me when I went up to the monastery, he said, you're going into the womb. And I thought, I'm, I'm heading into hell. This place is really difficult. Since graduating from monastic life, I've come to realize that he was right. It was a kind of womb. It was very, you became kind of innocent. You had a schedule. And you did it over and over and over. Um, the practice and the Sangha and the teacher really appreciated and encouraged a kind of uh, sincerity, honesty, um, salt of the earth, uh, personality. Uh, and you, you really, over the years, you became fresh. You, be, you, you became kind of innocent. Um, and. And then I was taking care of Roshi and he was so old. It was like taking care of a little child and he was so delicate and, and so precious. Um, and when this scandal hit, it just, everything came crashing to the ground. And this idea of kind of that I had nurtured of the teacher, and it was really a projection that came crashing to the ground. And Roshi had never really pretended to be uh, what I had projected onto him, and what many of us had projected onto him. I mean, he even said at one point, you know, people look at me like I'm this cute old dog, you know? Um, so when that scandal hit, it was really the, the end of my Eden, the, my Edenic, innocence as a monk. There was no denying anymore that, that there were serious problems within this beautiful little ecosystem that, that we had created together that had produced so many 
insights in so many people and, and had nurtured so many people's lives and had helped so many people through so many problems and had given all of us like a way out of sort of neoliberal, contemporary, late capitalistic, materialistic, aggressively secular society, given us like the flickering flame of wisdom and put it to our pathetic little candle wicks, you know? And we really valued that. And I really valued that. With the scandal, I had to realize you were attached to it and it's time to move on. And the reason I think I was so tortured, A, is probably because I had latent Catholic, um, <laughs> latent Catholic uh, guilt complex about things. And I was kind of trying to take on, um, I felt responsible for the problem. I felt guilty, I felt shame. And I was, I was, um, uh, I was, it was a problem that I, I wasn't gonna solve and it wasn't gonna be solved. I wanted to uh, do the right thing, but, but this, but, but, you know, there was no papering over the situation. There was no going back to the way things was. There was no denying that, that we had this problematic past that we hadn't dealt with. And that now because it exploded to the surface, our community was gonna be wounded. Our teacher's reputation was, was gonna be wounded. And most importantly, there were women and also men by proxy, but women that, you know, I mean, that had, that were, that were, that were hurt, like deeply hurt and had been turned, turned off and away from this, this path by this teacher wounded and hurt. I mean, that was the hardest part. Like that was the hard, I couldn't understand how this, the beautiful aspects of this life and this teaching and this teacher could coexist with this horrific um, harm that, that was now out in the open and couldn't be denied. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with this. And I took it all on sort of myself. I mean, I remember a priest telling me, boy, you really got up on the cross, you know? <laughs> that was my way of doing it at the time. Now I, I, would, I would have a different approach. I'm not so attached to that teacher practice or the community. When an organization like yours or your ex, your, your ex Sangha, I could say, or maybe you could still consider them to be your Sangha, how how should still I best my sangha, but still my still my sangha but still my dharma brothers and sisters i mean there's no the spiritual dna is 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 the same i'm a little i'm i'm sort of uh, yeah i'm not more practicing with with that community now although i yeah i practice here with the zen center that was once affiliated with that community so but i'm just not that in, in that much contact with 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 that community now the way I was before. When a, a organization headed by a charismatic figure and mm -hmm. it, uh, and as is often the case, uh, Sasaki Roshi refused to name any heirs or lineage descendants, which is not unusual in a, in a situation like that. Oh, wait, that was, that was the third death, the death of his lineage. Yeah, that's correct. He didn't name a successor, his lineage, essentially died with him. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, 
simply that when an organization with a charismatic figurehead like that, uh, when the charismatic leader dies, of course, it's 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 often it's a very it's an it's an often interesting time, <laughs> should we say, of kind of Game of Thrones time, you know, uh, scrabbling exactly. for you know for whatever you can get, and um, but I can imagine everyone wants a piece of the pie, but if the pie is is uh, should we say a bit poisoned, th that that could right. be an interesting uh, additional element of chaos. You write actually, I'm part of the diseased now the culturally repugnant. I'm what happens when the world is done listening to you, when the chickens have come home to roost. And actually, uh, of course, lineage is so important in Buddhism. And one of the great entries on your CV, seeing as it's not commonly done most of the time to talk about how enlightened you are in specific terms, one, one can do it via, one can show one's um, chops, so to say, by how many years of practice one's done, how many retreats one's done, something like this, or who your teacher was. And teachers draw a lot of authorities from their teachers. It's, it is a sort of pedigree, if you like. And Sasaki, yeah, and Sasaki Roshi was, as you, as you say, revered, and then later with an asterisk. So to be uh, associated with him, I imagine that that would have carried some degree of clout or some, some degree of, uh, uh, yeah, cachet, if you like, uh, which then, of course, becomes just the opposite after a situation like that in terms of the public perception that's the the level i'm talking about now so i'm curious what is it like to um emerge from a situation like that unable to draw authority or cachet or clout from from the lineage and from the teacher and in fact perhaps even that even one's association with it having not only just a neutral effect but perhaps even a negative one as you say yeah. you're part of the disease now the culturally repugnant you, you've written that absolutely um so to your specific question um i think it's wonderful <laughs> i mean as i said earlier i was arguably attached to my teacher. And I think, if I may, a lot of us were. Um, he was really strong, really, a really deep, really powerful teacher. And, you know, we were riding on his coattails and we were a little bit arrogant, I think. We had kind of an attitude in the community. We were the spiritual Marine Corps, whereas everybody else in America was kind of a little bit soft and we were led by this great teacher and we get our credentials through him. That is a caricature of um, a kind of flavor in, in our Sangha. We, at least I had to throw that all away. You, you, you stand before uh, students now um, on your own. It's kind of like the Dalai Lama said when they all had to get out of Tibet. He's like, from now on, every monk is on their own. It's kind of like that. Like you don't have the you know Harvard degree anymore. You have the Trump University degree. So what do you got? You 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 can't you can't rely on your robes to do the talking for you. You can't rely on your spiritual CV to do the talking for you. 
So who's going to do the talking for you when you're talking to college students? You know, you got to stand up there and do it. And you're also free. You're free of the, of the teacher sitting on your shoulder, judging your words. And Roshi was tough. Sasaki Roshi was tough. And every Dharma talk anybody ever gave from our community that he watched, he had a criticism about, you know, and I think if the scandal hadn't happened and there wasn't this asterisk, he'd still be sitting on our shoulders watching us talk. And maybe we might be a little bit less creative and take a little, uh, take fewer chances in our talks, maybe do things more by the numbers. But I don't feel like we have that op option anymore. What did you learn at the monastery on your own? You know, apart from your projections on your teacher and the pride you took in working with him, what did you learn? Because that's all you have now, what you learned on your own. And there's no one to check your understanding anymore. He's dead. Um, there's no lineage holder. It's just you, assuming you're not working with the new Roshi. So what do you got? I think it's, I think it's the great gift, um, if you can call it that, uh, that, that, the, that his four deaths ultimately left us with. Do you teach Zen today? Not formally, not, um, I'm not a leader of a temple. I give Dharma talks occasionally, um, very occasionally at the center here. Um, I've led a few retreats here. Mostly I'm just doing my own thing on YouTube and Patreon. Um, I'm, I don't, I give talks that are related to practice on YouTube. Um, I wouldn't call it teaching Zen. Um, if people find something useful in it, that's, that's great. Um, but to me, teaching Zen means you've got people who consider you their students. And I, I'm not, I don't wanna be anybody's teacher right now, maybe ever. I don't like that role. Um, it's, it's a big role. And I think you need a lineage behind you and the lineage comes with um, responsibilities and it comes with a head office and it comes with a certain way you need to present yourself. And that's just not where I'm at anymore. I'm not sure the Zen can be taught too. That's something I've started to realize. What do you mean by that? They call, they call that doubt, they call it like a problem officially in Zen practice. They call it gouging a wound in healthy flesh. <laughs> People are okay already. All you're gonna do is gouge a wound in their healthy flesh when you open your big mouth and they start projecting things on you. It happens so quickly when you're wearing those robes. You, you feel a responsibility and, and so you comport yourself in a certain way and then people start projecting things on you. Hmm. Um, two or three more questions, Jack, if you don't mind. Please. May I ask you a question about uh, Sasaki Roshi's fourth death. Yeah. And it's something that I wondered about ever since I read your book, Single White Monk. During this extended process, you, you cover a few years of the end of, uh, of Sasaki Roshi's life, and you characterize it as these four deaths. A brush with pneumonia in the first one, which he comes back from and uh, somewhat miraculously. And the last one, of course, being his physical death. And the mid middle ones we've discussed, the death of his reputation and, and the death of his lineage. Mm -hmm. And uh, during that time earlier in that first death, you write, uh, there's discussion about whether he should be taking painkillers or not. 
you quote his attendant having said, Lizzie, having said, uh, he's a Zen master. He's devoted his damn life to having a clear mind. Forget it. The second he takes morphine, it's over. Mm-hmm. And then later, uh, as you recall, towards the very, very end of his life, uh, there is once again a discussion. The nurse is there and um, he's dying and she suggests morphine. And you're asking the nurse, um, what, what will it do? And, she's, and she just repeats the same phrase, no matter what you ask her in your account. It'll help with the oxygen hunger. It'll help with the oxygen hunger. And so there's this debate. And eventually, you agree to administer morphine in a small but uh, effective dose. And then you write, Roshi's face goes molten. A wave ripples through it, an inner earthquake. It's like he's been knocked off course. He vibrates, stops, and he's wearing an expression neither Lizzie or I will ever forget. We'll debate what it means for years, but not the essential message. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we were, I mean, actually that day, we uh, we had kind of thought, my God, is he going to do it again? Is he going to pull through? Because we'd been through this a lot of times. And in our community, we had been through this a lot of times. I mean, my one of my early retreats, he had left the, the Zen Center in an ambulance to go die in a hospital. Uh, but he came back to life. Then he had had that literally, I mean, on death's door, the blade of the grim reaper the wind from the swinging blade of the grim reaper was ruffled his eyebrows practically and he seemed to be coming back this last time so he was there for a week um uh sunday to sunday and that sunday the hospital was like you got to get him out of here he's he's coming back you know we don't want to hold him on to him forever we're in the icu it's um and Myoshin, uh, i called her in there um had left that day to like do some shopping kind of get ready and then i was in the room alone with him and his oxygen started dropping and that's of course a terrible sign his um i forget what they call it, like the oxygen saturation was dropping and this nurse came in he's kind of this battle axe nurse you know and at the time i didn't really understand that morph i mean you know you're in trouble when they send in the uh pastors or the um yeah the the ministers or whatever the chaplains right we'd already been through the chaplains then they sent in the nurse and the nurse was sent was had morphine so that's the end helping with oxygen hunger. I mean, I think what it means is it just kind of lets you relax so that you can die. And morphine actually, I believe, helps you die. Um, So, I mean, I don't know how much of this I'm projecting onto that moment. I remember Myoshin and I talked a lot about it. He did, when so, so the lowest dose, I forget how much it was, and my memory is that she gave half. She So Myoshin was his power of attorney. She had the call and she didn't make this call till the very end based on the nurse's strong recommendations. So the smallest dose, 
Miosin then said, give him half of that. And yeah, my memory is that his eyes shot open and you know, I'm probably projecting some sort of interpretation on this, but the feeling was that whatever was going on, this shot of morphine had interrupted it. And he was like, you fucks, you, you idiots. Who knows? But after that, then I remember he took his last breath and people take their last breaths. And it, and it, there's a reason that that's a, that that's a chestnut, a cliche, like, and then, you know, I was looking up at the um, equipment and you're, you're expecting a flat line like in ER or the medical dramas, but there was like a question mark is my memory. And somewhere in there he died, you know, and my memory was that, yeah, yeah, it was, it was interesting. But that final moment with the morphine, I mean, it reaffirmed for me how well his, his inji, his caretaker had, had nurtured him in the final years of his life. Um, and I don't regret that decision to give him morphine. It may have prevented a great deal of, of pain in those final moments and you do the best you can. Uh, but it was, a, it was an interesting moment. You write in the introduction to Single White Monk, I call this genre of writing personal mythology. The stories told are not a record of objective reality. They're the fever dream of a man wrestling with his memory. His teacher, his lovers, his peers and himself. Let's just say the whole book was inspired by a true story, as if there were such a thing. And in fact, your writing in the book is uh, very raw, um, humorous and uh, at times uh, ambiguous. There's no 10 steps to better Zazen. Very few conclusions drawn, actually, although there are lessons um, and pith instructions, you could say, throughout the way of your insights as, as they occur to you in the context of, of the narrative of your life. Towards the end of, of uh, Zen Confidential, you write, here's a fair question to ask a monk. Has your practice touched that deepest, most vile, hateful, hideous part of yourself? Has it thrown the curtain on that demonic inner rodent and given it an ultimatum? Or is that part of you still alive? Is it underneath all your Zazen meditation practice, all those years of retreats and private meetings with your enlightened teacher? And you go on to write, one of the most disheartening things about being a full-time monk is watching your peers refuse or remain unable to change, grow up and transform as the years go by, watching them stay the same and move higher up in the monastic ranks and knowing that if you take away their robes, their position, their title, they are underneath it all, the same rotten person they ever were. They've just been hiding from the world behind robes and religion all these years. And the most devastating thing of all is when you realize that people feel this way about you. Mm. That's a harsh indictment of my peers. Fortunately, I turned the, the, the critical lens on myself at the end there, but what's your question? <laughs> My question is, after uh, many uh, years now of Zen practice in the inner circle of a revered with asterisk teacher, uh, with 10 years as a monk, actually living that rigorous lifestyle in the spiritual Marine Corps, as you put it, and, and as your group was known, what is the outcome of all of that? The pay, the pay, as you say, it's quite a, quite a harsh indictment. It's quite a bleak summary. What, what's the outcome now? You're living in Vienna. 
you're no longer teaching Zen, should we say, professionally, if we can say that, uh, as a, for a Zen teacher. Um, what's the outcome of, of all of that time? Where, where are you now at this point in, in your story? I think it ties into a little bit about what we talked about earlier. So if, if you're attached to the robes, if you're attached to the idea that a monk is special uh, and a priest has some kind of wisdom that, that the regular lay person doesn't have access to, um, then you're vulnerable to the criticisms that you don't live up to the hype and that every time you lose your temper or you behave in an unmindful way, that you're a phony or that the practice hasn't worked. I mean, for me, the really, I still have my robes. I still wear them when I go to the Zen though, but for me, I'm in that part of the training that in the uh, nine ox herding pictures is called returning to the marketplace. So the ox herding pictures, uh, it's a kind of a teaching in Zen and it's usually illustrated, um, you know, with the classic Japanese ink drawings. It's kind of a metaphor for leaving the world, going to the monastery, riding the ox of enlightenment in the mountains. First you catch a glimpse of it, then you ride the ox. Um, eventually you have to come back to the marketplace and you, you disappear, the robes disappear. You're a guy again, you're a woman again, you're a person. Um, and you can't, you, you can't, uh, for me, uh, you gotta let go of that idea that that there was something to attain on the path, and that and that you could. Uh, I mentioned in in that in that piece that you just read, I said um, that that fire is still that that um, that that satanic rodent is still alive in you. I would change that word alive to seeing now, like. I think that, you know, one of the things I learned about my teacher is maybe, maybe the human side is, is always there and it's always alive. Um, you're not going to get rid of it. You're not going to become perfect. You're not going to become this uh, avatar and beacon of, of flawless enlightenment. Um, I really try and bring my, I don't even try and bring my practice into my life. I, I try and live my life um, as with as much awareness and giving and, and uh, manifesting the principles that I learned at the monastery without the robes. Um, I think that that's the path that makes sense to me. There's a, this amazing story by Tolstoy that I recommend. It's called Father Ser Sergius, I think. And he, he, with absolute flawless perfection, shows the life of a spiritual seeker. And the guy starts off, he throws his, 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 his career away, he throws his beautiful fiance away, and he joins the mon Christian monastery. And then he gets totally disillusioned with that, and he goes and lives in a cave where he's tempted by a beautiful woman, but instead of giving into the temptation, he chops off his finger. Now he becomes a famous and revered spiritual figure and slowly an institution gets built up around him and people keep coming to him and sucking off of him. And he, and he gives, but he's tired. 
And Tolstoy is so good at showing you that pride that he feels deep down in his gifts as a spiritual figure, how he helps people, how maybe he can even heal people and how wonderful he is. And he shows this guy knowing that he's in this trap. And so at the height of his fame and his powers, he gives into this temptation and fools around with a young woman. And now he's um, ruined and he just disappears. And he goes and kind of becomes a wandering, nameless, anonymous beggar and winds up in Siberia, living on some guy's property, teaching the kids and tending to the garden. So I think that's where you should wind up, you know? simple, humble thing. He's growing food and he's teaching children. And if you can do that a little less stupidly and selfishly and with a little bit more wisdom, if you can do simple things in the everyday world, then I think that that's the conclusion of the path, not fancier and fancier robes and, and bigger titles and more best-selling books with 10 steps on better zazen. That's my pitch. <laughs> Jack Taupner, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.